Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am joined, as always, by my redoubtable colleague, Kelly Vlahos, as we try to shine some light on the more obscure parts of what the U.S. is doing around the world. This week, we are talking with Dan DePetris of Defense Priorities about the possibility of outside intervention in Haiti and the Biden administration's second summit for democracy. But first, let's turn to the story of leaked documents that show weaknesses in Ukrainian defenses and U.S. and NATO efforts to build up Ukrainian forces ahead of an anticipated counteroffensive. The leaked plans showed up last week on several platforms, including Twitter and Telegram, but they had originally been leaked as long ago as a month. Uh, Of all things, the Discord for Minecraft. Uh, According to the New York Times, military analysts said that the documents appear to have been modified in certain parts from their original format, overstating American estimates of Ukrainian war dead and understating estimates of Russian troops killed. The modifications could point to an effort of disinformation by Moscow, the Times reports, Uh, But the disclosures in the original documents, which appear as photographs of charts of anticipated weapons deliveries, troop and battalion strengths, and other plans, represent a significant breach of American intelligence in the effort to aid Ukraine. Uh, So what do you make of this, Kelly? How big of a deal is this leak, and what effect could it have on U.S.-Ukrainian intelligence cooperation in the coming year? I mean, I think it's a really big deal. And seeing that we're recording this on Tuesday, we're publishing on Friday, there could be several more revelations coming out. I don't think at this point that we've seen the end of these leaks. Even overnight, there were uh, more leaks uh, that were pretty embarrassing to our partners and friends uh, abroad, uh, one being that the Egyptians were apparently planning, and I don't know if they ever did, to send 40,000 rockets to Russia covertly. Uh, This is a country in which we've given tens of billions of dollars in economic and military assistance since the late 70s. Um, And I think 5 billion in the last, in 2022, something to that order. And for them to turn around (laughs) and supply that number of rockets, or at least Uh, plan to, to Russia after all of the the work that the United States has done to enjoin its friends and partners and allies in its fight against Russia on Ukraine's behalf is, is pretty extraordinary. There was another report that the UAE had held discussions with the Russians about um, resisting turning against entreaties by the UK and US intelligence services. And the Russians were overheard boasting that they managed to turn the UAE against us. Now, the UAE has come out very strongly in denying this conversation ever happened. But this is among a number of revelations that these leaks have exposed that show that uh, there is not this um, broad alliance that we keep talking about, this international world order that has turned against Russia. It, it, it shows that the multipolarity that exists in the world today um, is, is very serious about not this blind loyalty to the U.S. anymore, that they're going to do what they got to do for their own interests. We, of course, know that. We've talked about that many times on this show. And I think it's pretty intuitive all altogether. But seeing in black and white, <laughs> it's very embarrassing to the United States, which um, raises the question of who leaked these documents and why. Because, you know, if they, if the, if there was somebody in the U.S. government leaking these, to what benefit it, it, 
embarrasses us, embarrasses our allies, embarrasses the, the, the Ukrainians, but also embarrasses Russia as well. So, you know, this idea that they were they were behind the leak, I'm not so sure. I mean, it shows how deep that we have gotten into um, their their business in terms of our intelligence and how we were able to use the intelligence against the Russians by giving Ukraine um, information about when and where Russians were fighting. So I just, I don't know. It's, it's so huge, Dan. I'm, I'm not, I'm not so sure um, where it could be coming from and who it benefits. Well, yeah, we, we don't know any of that yet uh, in terms of, of where it's coming from. Although I think I've, I've seen some speculation coming out of the Pentagon that they they assume it must be a U.S. based source, uh, because most of the documents, the, the authentic documents that have been identified in the leak, uh, were only accessible uh, to people within within our government. Right. And so it so it's it's more it seems like it's more likely it's somebody from from within our government uh, for whatever reason. We, for I mean, whatever we, reason, we, we, we could we could just guess all day, but but that that seems. I mean, that's that's the the current. Thinking, I guess, uh, coming out of the Pentagon, that that's where it's coming from. Uh, the, you mentioned the the story about Egypt and the rockets, and that was one that caught my attention. Uh, the Washington Post did a write up of it uh, earlier this week, and I, I thought that was probably one of the most interesting uh, discoveries in these documents. Uh, is that CC was basically just flagrantly ignoring Washington's line on this and and doing whatever he wanted to do. Uh, and and it makes me wonder uh, how many other uh, client and partner governments are operating like this, uh, and 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 how how many times we're aware of it and we just let it slide. Uh, of course, U.S. military assistance to Egypt has been going on for decades. Uh, it continued even after the coup that brought Sisi to power, even though officially it should have ceased at that point, uh, according to our own laws. Uh, but they they've been finding ways to ignore that law uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, and I wonder, you know, will it take something like this, the public revelation of something as bad as that, uh, to finally force some reckoning with these these bad clients? Um, I don't know. Do you think there's anything that these clients can do that can finally lose them the patronage of the U.S.? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we saw over the summer Biden goes to the to Saudi Arabia to basically beg them to release more oil. And... Or was it the reverse? I kind of get that all wrong every time we talk about it. No, yeah, he he wanted them to to, to boost production to bring the price boost down. Boost production. Yeah, and, and so they and they told him, well, in fact, we're going to cut it, and then you know. Yeah, and they and, and and they fist bumped and and all that, and then they came back, and then um, Saudi Arabia did the opposite, and everybody got up and down, uh, jumping up and down here in Washington, saying we must rethink the relationship. And and then it just blew over, I guess, because the election, you know, actually turned in, in the Democrats' favor. Gas prices went down. But, I mean, since then, we have seen um, Saudi Arabia making entreaties with, with China, the UAE and China, China brokering, um, you know, better relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's just there's so many instances of which Saudi Arabia and UAE have, have just basically told us to take a leap uh, throughout the last year of this war. And and yet 
when it comes to um, cutting them off from U.S. weapons or assistance, uh, the Biden administration always puts a hard stop on it. And so I don't know, Dan, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I agree with you. They, they must, obviously, they, they had these transmissions through U.S. intelligence. We've been spying on our allies, which is another embarrassing factor of these, these leaks. Um, we obviously know that there is a lot of duplicity going on with our friends and partners in the region. Um, whether or not that will spur any action by the Biden administration or Congress, I, I have no idea. Um, I, I do. I, I think there's going to be some serious diplomatic repair attempted here, and it has to be. I know that they've sent uh, Wendy Sherman out uh, at, in her diplomatic role to sort of smooth things over because with the South Koreans, um, that's, a, that's another bag of chips. And the, the revelations there were that they were very wary about sending ammunition to the United States because they felt like the end user was going to be Ukraine. And they have a policy of not arming other countries in wartime. And they were discussing this. The top South Korean officials were discussing this amongst themselves that they felt pressured by the U.S., and now that's out there because of these leaks and they're and uh, President Yoon is getting all sorts of flack from his opposition party because he's not showing the cojones uh, with the the United States and pushing back on the fact that we've been spying on them. So he's going out there saying these documents were doctored. They're not true. Um, right. But what that shows me and should, you know, uh, be very clear to people is that we are going around bullying people. Uh, bullying other countries, our allies in this regard, um, to do our bidding on Ukraine policy, even when they don't want to. So there's just a lot going on here. I think it just rips the veil off of this whole idea that there's this very neat international order and there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. And of course, everybody wants to be a good guy and work together. There's just, it, there's just so many layers to it. And we know that, but it sometimes it takes leaks like this to really show it in, in stark relief. Sure, and well, and we're, we've been talking about the spying on allies and partners, but I mean, even ever since the, the Snowden revelations, and even before that, we it was understood that the U.S. was spying on everyone, including its allies. And so, I don't think anybody's really surprised that it's happening. I guess people just are annoyed that it's coming out. Uh, and it, it may make certain governments look bad to their domestic audiences, but you know, but what did they think was going on? Right? What, what were they expecting in in dealing with the U.S. as an ally? Uh, that this is this is how the U.S. has operated for a long time. Um, turning to, to what the the documents show about the war itself, uh, this is what has gotten a lot of attention, of course, because that's what the main focus of a lot of the documents. Uh, one of them includes an assessment that the war will likely be a stalemate throughout 2023. Uh, but, but again, this is something that outside analysts, analysts outside the government, were, were already predicting uh, without having to rely on any of the intelligence that people in the government have, uh, because that, that seems to be uh, the state of affairs. So uh, do, you, do you think that these revelations actually affect the course of the war very much at all? Do they do they actually give the Russians much of an advantage over what they already had? Well, you know, it could go either way. So whoever leaked these documents 
could be trying to set the stage uh, for a, 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 a stronger push for more U.S. Western weapons, because they're showing in detail that if Ukraine does not get these things by this spring, May, I believe, or April, May, which we're in April right now, um, mm. that they will not be able to affect a victory, the victory that they've been talking about and say is necessary, which a victory in Zelensky's terms is kicking Russia out of the country. These documents say they're not going to be able to do that um, if with under the current circumstances, they will at the most reach a stalemate by the end of 2023. So this just might be a bid to get more Western involvement, um, push it to the next level, or it could be that whoever is leaking it wants to tamp down expectations that whatever we do, it is not going to result in the kind of a grand victory that Zelensky and the West has been talking about for the last year. I, I just don't know. I, I think there could be different motivations here. But like you said, the bottom line is something that we've been talking about and that, that Millie has been talking about openly in public, that he doesn't expect uh, the kind of victory that that Zelensky wants. Um, but the detail is very... It's striking the fact that they are literally going to run out of these things by May is striking. And I don't think that benefits the United States to let that kind of information out. I also find the information about the number of U.S. Uh, personnel on the ground. I know it's not a lot. I think it's like 100 um, both NATO and U.S military personnel and the NATO personnel include special forces are on the ground. You know, most people assume that there are Americans on the ground. And I know the intercept has done some reporting on this. We know that there were special forces, at least European in the ground, but you know, Anatole even uh, had made a great point. He's like, yeah, they might've assumed, but this is like the first time we've gotten an actual official black and white record that there are boots on the ground and there, there should be some public acknowledgement that we do have personnel on the ground. And, and, and if anything happens to them, like they, one of them gets taken out by a Russian bomb or a sniper or whatever, um, there, that could lead to some serious escalation and the American people should have just, there, there should be some accountability there and there isn't. And that, and that's another revelation that I think, I don't think the United States is really hurrying to get out there. guest today is Dan DePetris. He's a fellow at Defense Priorities and a syndicated foreign affairs columnist at the Chicago Tribune. His work also appears in Newsweek, The Spectator, and The Examiner. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, it's our pleasure uh, because I've been reading your stuff for a long time and uh, glad we're finally able to get you on here to talk about some of it. Uh, A few weeks ago, you were writing about uh, the debate over possible outside intervention in Haiti uh, the Biden administration has been backing some form of outside armed intervention in Haiti since last year, but doesn't want U.S. forces involved. Uh, most recently, Biden tried to enlist the Canadians to take the lead of a multinational force, but Prime Minister Trudeau wasn't going for it. Uh, why doesn't Canada want to take on this role? 
Well, I think Canada is very much in the same headspace as the United States. You know, they, they see a bunch of problems emanating in Haiti with no real solutions. And, uh, you know, the Canadians actually authorized a delegation in Haiti several, several months ago. And the conclusion they came back with was outside intervention, particularly from a foreign military force like Canada, uh, would probably do more harm than good. And at the very best, uh, they could probably tamp down the violence for a short time, but the underlying political disputes in Haiti would, would persist. And in that case, you know, the Canadians would be in this position where they would either have to leave after several months or they would have to stay and basically, you know, staff a permanent occupant or semi-permanent occupation force. And, you know, Prime, Prime Minister Trudeau doesn't seem to be very, uh, receptive to that idea for, for good reason. Well, definitely. And I, I've seen in the Canadian press uh, some discussion uh, from their analysts and their, their foreign policy writers uh, that Canada doesn't even really have the capacity to carry out a mission of that size uh, that far away from home. Uh, and and that, that's another factor in, in the thinking of the, the Canadian government that they, even if they wanted to do it, they wouldn't really be able to. Uh, another Thing that has informed their thinking is that they they don't want to get involved in Haiti when there's so little political consensus. Uh, the, the current de facto government has no democratic legitimacy. Uh, there, there's a, a broad opposition movement that doesn't even acknowledge the, the legitimacy of the current leader, uh, Prime Minister Henri, and they fear that an intervention would just be used to prop up his unelected rule. Uh, what what maybe. What what could be some of the pitfalls of yet another outside intervention in Haiti, uh, if if any government could be persuaded to do it? Well, I mean, there's there's tactical problems, uh, there's political problems, and then there's economic problems. You know, ta- tactically, you Canadian troops or any any you know foreign intervention force would have to garrison themselves in some very very tough neighborhoods in in the capital, which has you know three million people and approximately 200 gangs spread over a wide area. So they would essentially be tasked with counterinsurgency operations. It wouldn't be peace enforcement or even peacekeeping. It would be counterinsurgency. So, you know, the Canadians look at our past experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's not much to, uh, there's not much to brag about in terms of counterinsurgency. So that's number one. Number two, as you mentioned, Daniel, and that's, I'm glad you brought this up, is the underlying political consensus or the lack of political consensus in Haiti. Um, you know, Prime Minister Henri is, is essentially an illegitimate, not elected government, uh, not elected prime minister. You know, he's not even a full prime minister, he's the interim prime minister. Um, and there's a, a wide swath of, of uh, you know, uh, opposition in, in Haiti that views him as not only unelected, but propped up by foreign powers and pretty much de- delegitimizes his, his, uh, his rule. Um, you know, and you can't blame them for thinking that because the United States did in fact prop him up right after the assassination of, uh, President Jovenel Moise. So, you know, it, it's, it's a very dicey situation with no clear answers and, uh, the Canadians and the United States, you know, there's a reason why Biden doesn't want to spearhead this thing. Uh, you know, he sees the the past past foreign interventions in Haiti over the last thirty years, and none of them have turned out very well. So, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is a definition of insanity, right? And Biden doesn't Biden has no intention of of uh, going down the same route. Well, and, and at least we're, we can be grateful for that much, at least. 
Uh, but uh, you, you point to the to U.S. backing for Henri, and then that's a major sticking point because, I, of course, a lot of people in the Haitian opposition uh, insist that the, the what the U.S. ought to be doing instead of talking about intervention is withdrawing our support uh, from Henri and shifting or throwing that support to some sort of transitional government that might actually be able to have real elections in the future. And so that it makes for an interesting contrast, given that we just had uh, last month this summit for democracy that the U.S. co-hosted, uh, that, that Biden is very excited about. Uh, when we have uh, a clear-cut case in our own hemisphere where we're backing a, a an unelected, uh, non-democratic leader in Haiti, uh, turning to the summit, uh, what, if anything, did the summit accomplish? And and why do you think Biden bothered holding another democracy summit after the first one was so widely panned? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the summit itself didn't accomplish anything. It, it, it was the way I view it, it was it was a multi-day public, public relations exercise um, with no substantive some uh, substantive uh, you know results. Uh, I, I kind of scanned through some of the press releases and the communiques that were issued and. They were very vague and, and non-detailed. And, you know, there's we haven't really been talking about it ever since. I mean, if you ask the average American, I suspect they probably wouldn't even think that. First, they probably wouldn't know what a dem- democracy summit was. And second, uh, they would probably question why we're even doing something like this, given, um, you know, the, the meager returns on, on, an, on an event like this. It, it seems like it's taking up a lot of the State Department's time. Um, you know, there's a time management issue where, you know, the State Department has probably better priorities and more important priorities to deal with than organizing a summit that, uh, you know, would kind of generates good headlines for 48 hours. And then, and then that's pretty much it in terms of results. Uh, so yeah, there was nothing really happening. There was a couple speeches that were given, uh, some working groups between, you know, the various leaders in attendance. But other than that, it seemed to me to be like a public relations uh, endeavor. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've been following your writing for some time, uh, but most specifically in the last year on Ukraine. And I'm wondering what you think, because you have um, you've been following the war in Ukraine. Um, You have been warning uh, about, um, you know, the escalation that the United States and the West and their policies in Ukraine might result in. But yet there's been a shift in the last few months on China with uh, members of Congress, uh, as well as members of the administration, really calling the alarms about uh, the threat of China. You see a lot of activity going on this week in the South China Sea with military drilling, whether it be U.S. and Philippines or the Chinese in response to uh, the visit of Taiwan's president to the United States. Are you surprised, given how closely you've been following um, both fronts, how much there's been a political shift and focus on China when things are clearly not resolved on the Ukraine front and it, it looks as though we're splitting in two in terms of our of United States focus and attention and, um, you know, and resolve. It just how how do you account for this dramatic shift? And is it sustainable for the United States to ha- to be in both places and, 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 and trying to resolve um, two major geopolitical dilemmas at the same time? 
Yeah, that's a good question, Kelly. And thank, thanks for having me on again. Um, I, I don't, it's sort of indicative of U.S. foreign policy writ large of, uh, you know, primacy and, and trying to do everything at once, everything at the same time, taking lead on every issue across the globe, regardless of what that issue may be and, and the state, you know, the direct stakes the United States has. If it were up to me, I would leave the Ukraine issue solely in the hands of the Europeans who have a much more um, direct national security stake and economic stake in the outcome. Uh, China, you know, China is one of these topics. It's interesting. It, it It's sort of a universal thing in, in D.C. where you have Democrats and Republicans very solidly on board the, um, you know, China containment policy. So, for instance, it, you know, if you look at President Biden's um, actions over the last two years, he's actually even more hawkish than President Trump has been, um, particularly on semiconductors, particularly, you know, uh, export controls, um, striking agreements with, uh, you know, Japan, Australia, the Philippines, um, engaging in a lot of freedom of, you know, freedom of operation uh, exercises, phone ops in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. So there's an interesting thing in D.C. where, you know, Republicans and Democrats don't don't agree on a lot of things, but they certainly are on board uh, China containment. Whether that's wise or not, it's it, you know, we can have a debate on that. But politically speaking, um, that's the direction we're headed in. It's, it's only been reinforced over the last 12 months or so. Yeah. So when let me ask you a question about yourself, because, you know, and, and, and like I said, I've been following your work and. You know, you have you have made a decision as a journalist and a commentator and critic and analyst to go against the grain, to go against the, the Washington consensus of what our foreign policy should be, and whether that's you know um, leaving troops in Syria or uh, getting out of Afghanistan or the current issues in Ukraine and China. You know, you've been a critic of U.S. foreign policy. Has it been difficult in this last year for you as a writer, whether it to be being published or uh, the feedback you've been getting on, on social media of what, whatever to operate in that space, particularly on Ukraine? Because, you know, like Dan and I know, I mean, if you take a hard line against the U.S. policy in Ukraine, you're you 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 get criticized as being a, you know, Putin apologist or pro-Russian or whatever. Has it been difficult or I'm, I'm just, I want to get a sense of, of what it's like to be Dan DePetris and in the, the foreign policy writing space. Well, I would say in an ordinary day, it's, it's always difficult going against conventional wisdom. Um, but particularly in the last 12 months, the, the emotion is so high, especially in this Ukraine issue where, you know, and it's and it's justifiable at some point. The way Putin has waged this war has been, you know, an abomination in terms of humanitarian uh, values. It's he's bombing cities mercilessly. He's you know he's indicted by for by the ICC for war crimes. So this is a war that has that gets on people's nerves for understandable reasons. So I, I don't I don't begrudge people for opposing um, my writings. You know, I mean it, it's. It's when we're in a society of free debate, free exchange of ideas, that's, that's fine. Uh, I only ask that people on the other side give me some, some space and some time to, to, um, 
you know, point out what I view as uh, the failures of U.S. foreign policy, just as I give them space to do so. So it's difficult, but uh, it's tolerable. You know, it, it's manageable to, to do. And Kelly and Dan, you've been in this situation, too, where um, even if you if you even ask questions, skeptical questions about how much, uh, you know, military assistance we're providing to the Ukrainians that can get sort of into a situation where you're, you're down a rabbit hole and you start, you, you start to hear ad hominem attacks and, oh, yeah. and everything like that. So it's something you have to tolerate and put up with. It's, it's unfortunate, but that's, that's the way, that's the way of the world, I guess. I know. It's funny because sometimes it, it, it just comes down to how I word a tweet. Like I'll be passing along a story, whether it be something that either I've written or I've, you know, admired in, in other people's work. And if I, I word it a certain way, that's not, um, is not doing the due diligence or genuflections to Ukraine. I'm, I get this flood of trolls calling me all sorts of names, um, which, you know, at the very least are something like, you know, um, Putin hugger or whatever, but even worse that I wouldn't want to repeat on this show. And it's, it's funny. It's just, it, it, it is a, it's a minefield. And I, I can't imagine like someone who, 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 um, is out there antagonizing those trolls day in and day out. <laughs> they must have like a skin of steel, um, to deal with that. Um, let me ask you one more question. What are your thoughts about Donald Trump? Because he and, and you don't have to say whether you support him in election or not. But is it frustrating that he seems to be the only candidate, whether it be on the left or the right, Democrat or Republican, who has had a clear position on Ukraine, which is we got to end this war and stop the violence because we're destroying Ukraine and it's not good for anybody? Well, I think, I think, uh, it's tough to say now because we're still very, very early on. So the more candidates come into the field, the more I would hope that we would have a discussion about, you know, the, the feasibility of our current policy and whether it's sustainable or not. Um, you know, tr- Trump is one of these guys who says whatever he thinks and, you know, you may hate him. You may love him. I- I'm sort of in between personally. Uh, some of his positions are, uh, Interesting. Others are downright uh, deplorable. So, you know, it depends on the issue. No candidate is right 100 percent of the time, certainly. So I I would wait a little bit before making a judgment overall. Um, We still have, you know, probably in the next three or four months, we'll we'll get six or seven declared presidential candidates who throw throw their hats in the ring. And then we could we can, you know, maybe I'll come back and and discuss whether uh, you, you debate on the Ukrainian Ukraine policy is is getting um adequate attention or not but right now i'm not hearing much from from declared or presumptive uh presidential candidates you're certainly correct on that front kelly well and one of the reasons that i think a lot of the candidates are steering clear of it is that as soon as anybody says anything that even mildly suggests a dissent from the the official line or or even the official rhetoric uh they get piled on and 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 uh attack from every side. I mean, we, we saw what happened with DeSantis when he made very modest uh, or, or expressed a, a view that was very modestly different from the Biden administration. In fact, in, in substance, I don't think his position is very different from Biden's at all. But because he used certain phrases or he, he framed things in certain ways uh, that more hawkish people didn't like, uh, all of a sudden he was an appeaser, an isolationist, and all the rest of it. Uh, 
and so he very well of course then he backtracked and, and ran the other direction and then stopped talking about it altogether and, I, and i'm afraid this is the, the problem that we have uh, both in in our debate over ukraine which is to say there isn't much of a debate uh, because anything that's even mildly categorized as dissent gets shouted down and we're seeing it happen with china policy too where uh, jessica chen weiss has written about this that if you are uh, not sort of performatively hawkish in your statements about china People will view you as unreliable, as as somehow suspect, as you know, as potentially being you know, in league with the communists, and it's it's a, a throwback to all of the worst habits of the original Cold War, as, as we move into a new one. And so, uh, what, what what do you make of this sort of conformity and groupthink that we see taking place uh, in both debates? Yeah, I mean, it's it's concerning, certainly. I mean, we have. This country has a history of groupthink and conformity, particularly, you know, you go back to the Cold War, very early days of the Cold War and, you know, leading up to the Vietnam War and, of course, the Iraq War, where conformity pretty much reigned throughout the policy circles and the think tank circuit and the media. So that's certainly a concern. And we have to people like us who who like to kind of push the envelope and, and challenge these uh, conventional views. We need to step up and continue to do our work. Otherwise, you know, conformity will be even worse than it is today. Um, it, it's one of the, it's, it's sort of when you go, when you get into Washington and, and you talk to people who uh, privately, you know, there are, there are even people within this quote unquote conformity circle. There are people who acknowledge uh, alternative viewpoints, but they're for whatever reason, they're kind of scared to openly say it probably because of the politics involved in, in challenging those, those kinds of, uh, you know, conventional policies. So it, it's certainly troubling, but, uh, it doesn't let us off the hook. It just, it just means people that have unconventional viewpoints and, or, uh, cynics and skeptics have to, have to be louder in, in the discourse. Well, definitely. And I mean, one of the things that I've seen that's been troubling to me is that, that the, the only way that anyone seems to be able to get a hearing as a skeptic in, in either the Ukraine debate or the China debate is by by sort of amping up their their hawkishness in the other on the other uh, in the other area. So you can be skeptical of Ukraine policy, provided that you're an insanely aggressive China hawk. Uh, and, and so you see a lot of that coming through. You can see that from someone like Josh Hawley or or Elbridge Colby, uh, who will make uh, China into such a great enemy that we can't take our eyes off of it. We can't be distracted by anything else. Uh, and and so that's how they sort of smuggle in their skepticism on the other side. But you can't find very many people who are skeptics on both sides. And so that, that, that I find that troubling that you have to be a militarist somewhere in order to even be part of the conversation. Uh, have you found that to be the case? Yes and no. I mean, I, I certainly see that trend, but I, I think we, we're slowly but surely getting into into a space where um, – People like myself who write on these positions, you know, write on these issues on a weekly basis, uh, take seriously what I, what I have to say. And I, that I wouldn't have said that five, six years, five, six years ago. I, I feel like there is some sort of progression. Um, there's a more open minded discourse on some issues. Uh, Ukraine is obviously a, a difficult issue to have an open minded discourse at times, but 
Certainly, China is also one of those issues. But for instance, in the Middle East, I've, I, the the discourse on the Middle East has changed markedly. The way I look at it, over the you know from 2016 to 2023, or going back even a decade, it's it's almost night and day. Where people are generally skeptical now, I think of these open ended um, you know missions. Uh, particularly large-scale counterinsurgency missions that we've that we conducted in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so you know it, it, it's going to be interesting five, ten years down the line whether that same development may play out in, on Ukraine or Asia. Uh, we don't know yet, obviously, but um, there, there. I, I would, I, I guess, I would say it's an open-minded uh, discussion that we have on the Middle East and parts of the Persian Gulf. China and Ukraine, it's it's very it's very much old habits, um, and I don't see those old habits dying very often, very soon. It may take a while, but uh, you know, got to be hopeful and cynical at the same time, which can be tough. Yeah, the the uh, yeah the the marriage of, of hope and cynicism. I, that, that's probably our motto around here. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think we we run out of time, but I want to thank you, uh, Dan DePetris from Defense Priorities, for coming on. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, yeah, and people can find your stuff at Newsweek, uh, and uh, and you also write for the Chicago Tribune, right? Uh, Chicago so. Tribune, and um, also the Examiner, and I encourage everybody to go to Defense Priorities, where our mission really yes. is to to kind of open the foreign policy debate and to challenge uh, challenge the primacy that that has been de facto U.S. policy for for so long for the past thirty years. So, I encourage people to read all our reports over there as well. Definitely. Very good. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. 